When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. There are few contemporary bands as prolific and slippery as Animal Collective. In the first two decades of their collaborative career, the boyhood friends from Baltimore experimented in sound art, warped the edges of avant pop, exploded into mainstream maximalism, and finally, returned to an ambient, deconstructed naturalism. Their new album, Time Skiffs, is something different. It's the sound of a band at equilibrium, tempering the feral catharsis of career highs like 2007 Strawberry Jam with the subdued minimalism of more pensive records, like 2017's Meeting of the Waters. Time Skiffs is the first album to feature all four members of Animal Collective, Avi Terre, Panda Bear, Deacon, and Geologist, since 2012's Centipede Hurts. A lot has changed in the interim, in each of their lives, in the band's progression, and in the world at large. Recorded remotely during lockdown, the new record addresses the personal and the socio-political in slow motion, with the same air of relaxed reflection. Even from opposite sides of the Atlantic, the telepathic bond they share allows them to complete each other's musical thoughts, jamming on the astral plane with more synchronicity than most bands will ever achieve in person. A few days after the album's release, The Fader's Raphael Helfan sat down with Panda Bear and Deacon to discuss the group's creative ebbs and flows, the music box village in New Orleans, and how the Grateful Dead influenced time skiffs. Could you guys introduce yourselves? This is Josh. I'm known as Deacon in, in Animal Collective. And my name is Noah, and I'm Panda Bear in the group. Great. I'm Raphael, and I'm, I'm known as Raphael uh, around here. Um, Time Skiffs, to me, feels like the most understated pop album Animal Collective has ever made. And I, I throw that pop caveat in there to exclude the more minimalist records you've put out. What would you say was the role of restraint on this album? I don't know if I necessarily experienced it as restraint, but I, I think that you know every record that we do we generally try and sort of um, come up with some sort of new road for us to go down? Oftentimes that has to do with like uh, choices around arrangement and instrumentation. And so I think that this record, there was a lot of talk before we actually started working on the arrangements about instrumentation approach to compare to like Centipede Hertz, which is the last linear record that I was part of. Uh, like Dave's sound was him playing uh, a keyboard through three different pedal chains at the same time into three different amp stacks. And so anytime he hit a note on the keys, it was literally like a top end sound that had one particular effect chain going through it, like a more mid range sound and then a sub um, as well. So there was this like huge array of sound coming out of just his keys alone, let alone me playing guitar. And I often had, you know, the same thing going on. I was playing baritone uh, and I was going through two different effects chains as well. And sometimes there could be like really, you know, I was jumping from 
highs to lows and all over the place. Noah was playing a kit, but it was a very augmented, unusual kit, and it all had pickups on it, and those pickups were going through effects. And so it was both the acoustic sound of the drums themselves as well as this uh, kind of electronic sound coming off of them. And, of course, Brian doing um, all his uh, really incredible um, soundscape stuff as well as playing like bass tones with the Taurus. And so there's just this huge wall of stuff happening. And this time I think we made a lot of decisions that were very minimal. Uh, Noah is just playing a really traditional trap kit, no effects, no samplers, just really wanted to focus on like the essential kind of rhythmic patterns that he was doing and keeping it really like light. And Dave decided that all he wanted to do was just play electric bass. And he uses a little bit of effects here and there, but in general, it's pretty much just electric bass and good tone and coming up with cool bass lines. And so I think that those two choices alone and then kind of leaving me and Brian to kind of work more in like the, the mid-range arrangements around songs, I think just left a certain space around once we started kind of working on the songs themselves that maybe translates as sort of a, a restraint. Um, I don't think we necessarily experienced that playing them um, or thought about that word restraint when we sort of talked about stuff, but I think that, that I could see how that would sort of have an effect on that. Even though we didn't, have a lot or at least I don't remember having conversations about wanting to do something more restrained or minimal in part it's a reaction to some of the other things we've done more recently I guess I'm thinking of painting with and centipede hurts that were really kind of like as Josh was saying more maximal in approach and each of us was kind of doing a variety of things or dealing with a variety of tones per song. So I don't really remember having conversations about the intention of doing something that felt more minimal, but I do remember talking about us each wanting to kind of limit what we were going to do over like the set of songs. So as Josh was saying, Dave was really going to focus on just playing bass and singing. I was going to just focus on playing drums and singing and a really kind of minimal kit at that. So I think it's fair to say that a more like restrained idea was uh, intentional or a target in some way. I think, yeah, I think it'd be fair to say that your drums on most Animal Collective albums can get pretty bombastic and like often like lead the charge. But uh, on the new album, yeah, most striking on the opener, Dragon Slayer, you're way back in the mix and sometimes even like a touch behind the beat maybe. talked about how you were inspired by old funk drummers like Clyde Stubblefield and mm -hmm. also like more contemporary fusion artists, I guess, like Anderson Pack. What would you say you learned from them specifically like, and, and how did that inform this album? I'd say the biggest thing was like the way that the hi-hat and the snare work and doing combinations of harder strikes and softer strikes and a lot of ghost notes and stuff like that. I didn't really know how to do any of that kind of thing before. And uh, so it was just being fans of that kind of stuff and trying to figure out how it worked and how they got those sort of sounds that kind of sent me down this journey of trying to figure out how to do that with my body. And it seems to be mostly to me about getting your hands to be able to get kind of machine-like on the hi-hat and the snare. 
Yeah, and just focusing on like striking the drums to get really specific tones rather than just kind of whacking away, which was uh, my previous approach, as you were saying. Yeah, so just trying to investigate how to get that that sound and try to figure out, hopefully, my own way of doing it. Beyond that, it was a bit trying to just complement the songs, not really overplay, just sort of figure out what suited the song the best. Focusing more on feel rather than pattern, perhaps a little bit. In interviews for this album, y'all have alluded to a sort of group musical mind meld, I guess. Um, I'm really curious about what this sort of synchronicity feels like and how it's achieved. Was it a gradual evolution or breaking moments where everything just clicked? It's probably been a bit of both. I think there have been revelatory moments throughout like our lives as musicians, but I think that it's also been like, yeah, there's something in the writing sessions that we've done in the last year that don't feel so dissimilar from things that we did when we were 19 years old in terms of like listening to each other. I mean, I, you know, much more evolved in many ways, but I'm supporting what you're saying now that I think it's been gradual. It goes all the way back to that. And I think it's been this like every, every year, every new project, there's like opportunities to kind of like learn new ways of like what each person thinks and how they're going to react to something. And you start to sort of start to anticipate and understand like what the language of each of us is when, when we're kind of like going for something and you, you can, I feel like Dave said it pretty well recently. I, I know where Noah's going to go bef- sometimes before he even goes there, you know. I would guess that that sort of understanding goes hand in hand with us understanding each other and experiencing each other on a personal level, which is why my instinct was to say it was gradual because I feel like as we've gotten to know each other, I would assume that, that that sort of language of performing and playing music with each other also kind of gets heightened by personal connections. I can't prove that, obviously, but uh, that would be my wager. No, 100%. And I I think a lot of it also has to do with how much um, we have embraced improvisation for so long. We probably did some improvisation in high school, but I know that improvisation became a really big part of the group as a whole, um, especially kind of in the early aughts and has kind of continued to be something that oftentimes is the source of sort of sound palettes or even ways that we just sort of discover the sort of true nature of songs even that have already been written. I think because we spent so much time in rooms with total free improvisation approach to things, I think that when we're writing, someone, Noah or Dave or myself, might bring in a song that kind of has a structure already and has a melody, but we're, we kind of leave the space open to like let everyone kind of like fall into something where the, the arrangement's discovered almost through improvisation. This conversation also makes me remember something, which was when we were 17 or 18 or so, Dave, Josh, and I had this project where we set musical passages to like a poem or a set of words that we had, and then you would have to imagine the words in your head, and each note was kind of set to one of the consonants or the syllables in the words. It became this exercise in trying to like read the other people going through the the words in their head and playing along with them rather than reacting to each other. That's an early instance of, of us kind of testing our telepathic links, I suppose. It was uh, very unsuccessful, I should say. I think we busted a bass amp an hour into it and just sort of gave up on it after that. For the Music Box show that you did in New Orleans in 2018, Josh, can you tell me a little about what the preparation for that was like and how you feel the ultimate experience ended up? Yeah, I mean, that group, I had been aware of them since 2015. I moved to New Orleans for a brief period of time that year and spent some time there and, and got to know those people, mostly 
because uh, at one point, uh, Ardo Lindsay, who um, we've known on and off for years, came through town to do a collaboration with that group and was happened to be staying in the same sort of complex where I was living. Um, and so we kind of reconnected and then he was doing that show and he kind of invited me to be a small part of it. And at that point, they weren't doing it in this. Th at that point, it was more of a mobile experience. They they had set up in, in City Park in New Orleans for like a couple months and were doing a string of, of different performances and Ardo's was one of them. I met all the people that ran that place and I, I was really in enamored of them just as people I was really uh, just kind of blown away by the by the buildings and the energy of it and and their their sort of approach to collaboration around sort of both everything from the artists that built the structures to the musicians they'd bring in to their encouragement of the musicians that they would bring in to collaborate with musicians from New Orleans and so there was this sort of very inspiring community self-reliance DIY energy that just felt you know, familiar going back to like our early days in Brooklyn to, I don't know, it just was really cool. And so we kept in touch and talked about collaborating at some point. And then in 2017, we kind of knew that the sort of painting with era shows were done. And there was a lot of kind of like open space. The music box people had recently opened up that space where you were the, the kind of permanent housing they have in, uh, in the Bywater in New Orleans and they asked us if we want to do something and I think yeah me Dave and Brian especially just felt really like excited to do it Dave also has a, a pretty deep love for New Orleans yeah we knew that if we we're going to do a show like that it didn't make any sense to try and do like a proper animal collective show with like old material um Noah wasn't really available the money wasn't really there to kind of fly him over anyway I think he was wrapped up in other stuff and I think because painting with was that era was sort of done there's a usually a, an energy on our part to kind of like let that that sort of energy dissipate for a bit. And so, yeah, Dave and Brian and I just decided we were going to do it, just the three of us, and sent a bunch of demos around to each other in the kind of end of 2017. They all were cool ideas. And we got together in Baltimore, I think just for like two or three days, we wanted to approach it with a certain amount of minimalism, which sort of harken, you know, kind of as a callback to your question earlier as well. I think that's maybe one of the things that led to sort of some of the restraint on this record, we had talked to the people at the Music Box about what performances were like there in general, and they acknowledged that a lot of bands that come through there really just come through and perform shows there with the Music Boxes as a backdrop and don't really interact with them at all. And I think we kind of felt like, well, since we're coming in with new music, like it would be the coolest if we could sort of go and really use them. And so we asked them to send us sort of like audio samples of what the different houses could do. And we're trying to sort of think about like how we could sort of incorporate them. And so we, we worked out arrangements in Baltimore that had a lot of open space in them. Yeah, we had about a week, I think, or maybe five days leading up to the actual performances where we were we got to kind of rehearse there and work on stuff. So we showed up with these songs that, you know, we had our own arrangements with our own instruments, but we also kind of had the space for this other stuff. And we had um, been interested in and they had encouraged collaboration with some other musicians. And so we got these three really incredible women, Helen Jolay, who's this really incredible um kind of experimental cello player, Aurora Neeland, who's just a kind of incredible instrumentalist, saxophones and uh, violin. And uh, I think she played like chains uh, with a pickup mic. And then Marion Tortorich, who's we had known before as well, um, who's just a, she's a percussionist and she, she was doing some drumming and rhythmic stuff. And we just, yeah, we just kind of hold up there for for a week and, and got to um, experiment with how to use the houses and how to collaborate with these, these musicians. And yeah, and then the performances, the performances were super great. I think that all four of us have our loving relationship to sort of our sort of more standard club show life. It can be really great to, you know, just play a really tight show uh, on a stage with a great PA in front of a bunch of people. But, you know, we, we grew up doing DIY stuff and I think we all 
have our own relationships to being able to kind of be in environments that feel non-traditional. And I think that was just, it's a really incredible space to be able to do something that felt much more integrated with the audience. I mean, you got to experience how there was no really real separation between you guys and us. And I think everybody kind of just felt like they were part of it and sound was kind of coming from everywhere and felt very interactive and collaborative to us. And yeah, just really exciting. And um, absolutely, it was like, yeah, the kind of like the sort of spiritual foundation, I think, for this era of music, both the songs that ended up on Time Skips, and then there's a whole bunch of other songs that were done there that are um, we've actually yeah, already recorded that will be like on the next record. So Presser John is a track that goes all the way back to, to the Music Box show. Using this track as a sort of case study, can you talk about how your live workshopping process has changed over the years and how the pandemic affected it for the tracks on Time Skips? I don't feel like our process has changed all that much. Maybe we demo stuff more extensively than we used to. It used to be kind of like somebody, especially in the early days, it was almost always Dave would come in with sort of like a blueprint for a song and just be like, this part goes like this, and then this part goes like this. And then we would just try to like, you know, we'd go piece by piece and try to put it together. Whereas now we do a lot more demos that we'll send to each other. So everybody has a pretty solid idea of, of how the thing's going to go. And then it just, becomes about trying to sort like find your way into that blueprint as far as the pandemic i feel like the only thing that it affected because all the lyrics were done before the thing so none of the songs uh, are about that at least not in any explicit way but i feel like the the choices of songs were like these were the songs that we felt like uh, and a couple others that we eventually didn't put on time skips but these were the songs we felt like we could do remote and play to a click or whatever just try to like piece it together um these were the songs that felt kind of less reliant on any kind of performance dynamic between the four of us in the room and i guess specifically for a song like Prester John, I mean, you guys are, are famous for playing songs live for the first time before they're released publicly. And this is obviously one of those cases. You think that's like the, the development of Prester John is somewhat typical of an Animal Collective track? Or was it a bit different because of the setting it was first performed in? I think it's a little different. I think that the, the Music Box show... I'd say both is very much spiritual totem energy for what time skips is. And at the same time, it is, it, it was very much sort of a, a very unique setting and a very unique approach. And I don't think we necessarily thought of that. Like when we did it, we weren't thinking of like, oh, this is the beginning of a new era. We just were like, let's write an hour's worth of songs. Like this would be cool to do and let's do it in this really unique environment. And I do think that some of the energy of that certainly translated, but also, you know, really it was just kind of an early attempt at trying something in a, in a, a different way and in many ways i could say that it didn't other than just like the basic structure of that like the chord structure and the words and like the harmonies between me and dave you know there wasn't really much we just kind of like we, there was a whole new approach i mean even at that show dave was playing a juno and i was maybe i was just was singing for that section of the song like i don't even know if i was playing an instrument and then when we do it live now like i'm playing keyboards and dave is playing bass and so it's just a, you know noah's rhythms are very you know that was not it wasn't it wasn't a rhythmic part uh, in New Orleans, it was a it was kind of a free form section. I don't really know if there was other than just sort of like the very basic idea of it much translated. I think in that sense, it's a, it's a little bit a little bit more unusual. I'd say like generally with Animal Collective, like when we start working on stuff prior to recording it, it's usually closer than that is to what ends up being on the record. It's usually as kind of the beginning of the actual arrangement that we're going to end up with, and this kind of was an outlier for sure. And there's one thing that's highly unusual and unique about that one, and that is two two songs that weren't 
written to be together that we're just kind of mashed up, kind of Frankenstein together. Um, and it's really rare that that works, at least for our song. So this was just sort of a serendipitous thing that we noticed. I can't remember who noticed it, but I want to say it was during rehearsal when we were kind of just playing one song into the next that we noticed that this piece could really fit with this other piece, but highly unusual in that regard. Okay, so let's talk about keys. The song has a jangly feel that is onomatopoeic to its title. I've read multiple places that you don't talk much to each other about what lyrics mean. So I'm wondering how you achieve this this leader score synchronicity. Does it go back to that mind meld again? I think so. That's the best answer that I have. I mean, it's not, again, it's not like something we talk a whole lot about. I don't really know why we're so guarded about the songs, I guess, just temperament character that's just what we're like occasionally i'll i'll ask one of the guys like oh that's like a cool lyric there what's that about it's usually just a line or something it's really rare that i'll be like so break it down to me what's this one about i don't really know the reason for that other than to say that's just kind of what we're like as people but yeah i'd I'd guess that the resemblance or the the way that the the sounds of the song and the title go together was more accidental than anything i'd hope that it has something to do with that sort of link between us. Yeah, I mean, that was one where, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, I'm sure. I feel like I remember being in Leaper's Fork in Nashville or outside of Nashville and Dave being the one to suggest like the idea of me and him and Brian trading off like sections of each measure. So it's like you hit the this and then Josh goes and then Brian goes and then back to me and then whatever, like every measure is just this like constant trade off. Um, and I don't think that had anything to do with the demo that Noah had sent. And I feel like that basic foundation and like what the three of us are playing, Dave ultimately ended up changing his his baseline approach, but like it kind of worked almost immediately. Like I feel like literally almost the first time we did it, like we all, I mean, then we had to kind of like hash through it and there was a lot of nuances, but the basic idea of like how the trade-off worked happened without, uh, it was just Dave being like, hey, let's try this. I hadn't even like started playing the style that I ended up doing, which was the sort of like, Indonesian like approach and I just I don't know it just kind of all like came together really quickly and it had nothing to do with talking about like the lyrical content I don't even know if Noah was like singing actual words at that point some of the songs end up like kind of just being like the singing is is non non like lyrical initially and is more just like an emotional you're just using the voice as an instrument and trying to find the sound of the song I'd say most of my songs for this one didn't have words for a lot of its lifespan and how are we doing now how are we doing
Let's go back to Strung With Everything, which I think is probably this album's catchiest track, especially in the call and response second half of the song. It hits this groove that immediately evokes early rock and roll. Let's say tonight you and me Watch the sky fall into Who do you still listen to from that late 50s, early 60s era? I know Dave listens to a lot of stuff. I'm trying to think of uh, stuff that he's talked about recently that I feel like probably would have um, been in there. But I feel like Dave is probably the one that most actively listens to like 50s rock. I mean, whenever he puts it on, I'm always pretty psyched and he'll throw it into mixes and stuff. I don't know if I have like a good, uh, interesting answer that would like sort of evoke that sounds necessarily i mean i listen to a fair amount of like gospel like old gospel compilations which i feel like that kind of energy is in there too i think that overlaps with the 50s kind of vibe i definitely feel like i was yeah like those those chords kind of evoked that for me and i feel like when i was like the kind of key arrangements on that section i think very much was like thinking kind of like gospel kind of energy i'm the worst reference guy i'm the second worst <laughs> i was gonna i didn't want to speak for you but me and me and josh are kind of at the lower side of the the totem pole of of referencing stuff. I'm certainly like way below everybody else, but I'd say Dave, Dave and Brian are would give you the coolest answers. But I think it's a, sort of just a difference in brain approach too. Like I feel like uh, I'm influenced by so many different things, and I feel like when people ask that question, part of me just spins. And I think I think we kind of all feel this way. But it's like I don't think there's very often many times where there's like one influence is the primary thing for that section of a song. There's like a million different leaves of a part and they're all different references because I think we all individually soak in so many different types of music. And then the f- those four four people with all of their own things are bringing in like these different facets into like one little section. So like literally like one chord progression, like how we're each treating that can end up sort of being this like pretty big melting pot of stuff, which I think is what makes us interesting hopefully maybe sometimes gets in our way i don't know even if i wasn't a bad reference person i think i sort of resist answering those questions because i never feel like it's as simple as just saying like oh yeah yeah that's totally that's the grateful dead yep that's the beach boys like sure thing you know like it's not that simple it's 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 usually there's so much more complexity to it i guess i just feel like anytime we feel like something's too referential we'll change it because we don't we don't want to kind of steal something so explicitly I'm sure it doesn't always sound that way to people, but we we will steer clear of anything that feels too referential. You've always been a really visual band, and given that you've now made a full visual album, I'm I'm wondering how you feel about the potential of NFTs in the music space. You think that they have the ability to create real change in the industry, as some people say, or uh, are they a hoax? I think it's too early to say, really. I mean, I feel like I've read a thousand different things about them. I have friends who've done really well with them. I'm just speaking for me, not the group, but it's not something that I've felt interested in. But again, like they've had a lot of, they've meant a lot for other people that I know. So I I don't want to just trash them, but. I feel like a- any perspective that, like so many other things these days, any any perspective that you have, you can find support for that thesis somewhere. But uh, I, I, 
personally, I feel like it's maybe too early for me to say kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. I mean, Noah's, Noah's, uh, probably like awareness of the ins and outs of it's probably much more developed than mine. I have a very like gut instinct, negative feeling about it. Like I understand some of the arguments about the potential positives of like sort of income flow directly to artists that I, I do understand, like how that's a cool idea. But I think there's something my limited understanding of like what it is as a form, something about it really doesn't, I just, it, it, it makes my skin crawl or something, but I, you know, that may be like a really uneducated perspective to take. And as Noah said, there's plenty of people that have benefited from it and maybe it's ultimately going to end up feeling like a good thing. And I'm just being a, a Luddite. Last uh, sort of sound buddy question before we finish off with the album. Obviously you're all big fans of the dead. The back half of the album sort of is, feels like when you really settle into the ethos of a jam band. I'm wondering how you feel about contemporary jam band culture and the resurgence of the dead within that context. I don't feel like I know that much about contemporary jam bands. I mean, like jamming in between songs is something we've been into for kind of since we started playing shows. I feel like mostly influenced by the dead, I'd say. But also pavement, maybe. Is that fair? Yeah. And also, I mean, we had always talked about the kind of like just like DJ culture, like just mixing between songs. I think that's something that kind of settled in in the, the mid aughts as well. And I feel like there was other groups that we were coming up with that were kind of doing that as well. Like, I feel like Gang Gang would do that. I feel like Black Dice had their own versions of doing that. And I think also just improvisation again in general. I think having experienced like writing music in an improvisational way where you're just going for 45 minutes and there are different like peaks of that improvisation that feel like their own little like, oh, for four minutes we were in this world and then it kind of fell apart and, but we were all still were playing and then it like evolved into this whole new other blossom, which is its own new thing. And so I think we kind of just experienced that. I don't know if that was necessarily like directly related to the dead. Yeah. I mean, I, similar to Noah, I don't really have much of a relationship to be honest with um, contemporary jam band music. I feel like I really love the dead, but you know, most of what I love about them is, is definitely like sixties and seventies. And I think I'm starting to kind of open myself up to the eighties a bit. Dave sent an eighties show actually the other day that was like three and a half hours long. And he was like, this one's pretty good. Check this out literally like four days ago. And it had some cool moments um, on it for sure. I think it's interesting though, almost to like reflect back at you. I've probably been paying more attention. I would assume more attention than anybody else in the band has to like reviews and, and sort of people's reactions to the record online and uh, it's kind of mind-blowing to me like how like you you said the second half is like the dead to you uh other people i've heard say like the first half is the dead to them Uh, like i don't know how to explain what i'm saying it's like sort of like depending on who you're talking to people have these like things that they imprint on it that don't match up it's not like there's a consistency like oh everyone kind of seems to think it's this and the things that I do think people do that with are things that I'd still do kind of rail against to some degree, like Beach Boys, for example, which I know is like a very, it's an understandable, like obvious reference, but I just feel like there's so much music that I think of as being like harmony based music that I feel like is equally as, I mean, I think there's tons of like African music that we love listening to that has a lot of harmonies that I think like, you know, even just within the world of harmonies themselves, like, you know, CSMY is like another group that, you know, there's so many things that I think were influenced by that way. The dead, I think, um, even though their voices were like particularly raw, sometimes I think there's certain ways that like their harmonies. Uh, I think the way that the, the harmonies and the singing on this one, I think I told you this one has the most dead sounding or like the vibe of the singing is the most dead like that we've done. 
there's like a kind of looseness to it. Before, I feel like we would go for these things that were way more rigid and like clearly defined. Maybe it's just the three voices, but uh, yeah, there's something kind of like washy in the the harmonies on this one that make make me think of something like American Beauty. The closer, which from what I understand is is your song, Josh. It's it's got a real air of finality to it in the way Love Rain or Me or this is the end or something does. What do you feel the connection is between that song and the rest of the album? And how did you decide to cap it off with that? I don't know if I know what the connection is to the rest of the album, but I would say that sort of about any song on the record. I think probably different records are different in this way, but I think this one is is more on the side of kind of like allowing a lot of different things that the four of us bring to the table to kind of coexist and just finding the kind of like interesting collage of that. Um, I I know there's other records that we've done that feel maybe more like there's some sort of cohesive, not that this is uncohesive, but I just, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily think any of us think of it that way. And I think like Noah said, a lot of the reasons why this particular group of nine songs came together in part just had to do with, oh, we can record these remotely and not lose their essence. We probably would have ended up with, to be honest, very different records if we had kept our original plan, which was to record all whatever it is, 18 songs that we kind of had um, in January of 2020, we probably just would have recorded most of them all at once or at least like focused on them in a, in a different way based on just how things were feeling in the studio. So we probably would have ended up with something very different. And uh, and I didn't make the decision to put it at the end, so I can't really say. I mean, it works to me. I think it's cool. But yeah, I mean, the connection to Bywater in New Orleans, um, I mean, that was very, uh, I mean, we I, I had written that song prior to going to do the music box shows, but I hadn't finished the lyrics at that point. And I still hadn't finished all of them, but that particular verse came to me like literally while we were in New Orleans at the music box, I think like a day or two before we performed it, I was I was still missing a verse. And I think that the, you know, the what the kind of song is about uh, is a person who kind of constantly, uh, in spite of like any good sign to the contrary, keeps on kind of like slipping back into like a, a sense of defeat uh, or a sense that like things aren't gonna work. And sort of the song is kind of about trying to sort of remember how to remember oneself. And so I think that in that actual moment of the songwriter who might be the subject of the song, like kind of grappling with his own relationship to like what it means to be doing what he's doing. I was standing in the music box village surrounded by water oaks and the train was going by and it's a neighborhood that I love very much. And there was a light drizzle. Music is kind of everywhere there. And it was, it was actually this kind of like moment of like recentering to myself and remembering kind of who I was and why I do what I do and, and how the song in and of itself is sort of the thing that kind of brings me back to myself. Um, so it kind of just was this moment where a song that I've been searching for kind of crystallized like in a, in a moment and it stuck. So I don't know. Well, great. I think, I think we can end there. Great talking to you. Yeah, man. Thank you. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, man. Be well. That was Panda Bear and Deacon talking to the Faders Raphael Halford. Animal Collective's new album, 
Time Skiffs is out now via Domino. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a rating and a review. And don't forget to keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.